Tonight on Farage, an energy crisis, gas prices soaring, companies on the verge of going bankrupt. Is it time the UK became energy independent? We'll cross to New York, where it looks like Boris Johnson, well, not just him, the EU as well, are on the verge of a victory. We might be able to go on business and to Disneyland this Christmas. And on Talking Pints, I'm going to be joined by Alex Proud, nightclub owner and eccentric. Well, keen observers of this show will know, just a few weeks ago, I did a feature on energy prices. Why were our bills, our bills for electricity, our bills for gas, why were they all going up as much as they were? I focused particularly on one thing in that particular programme, and that was green subsidy. Something that's been hidden from consumers. Something that all the political parties don't want to talk about because they all want to go green. And they've been very happy for you, as ordinary people, to pay lots of extra money on your bills so that rich landowners and big companies, nearly all of them foreign big companies, can make vast amounts of profit. So I talked about that. I've also talked in the last few weeks about inflation coming back into our economy in a way that we haven't seen for 40 years. Years. I mean, you've got to be over 50 to even remember what inflation actually is. But since the pandemic began, indeed even before that, governments have created a lot more money. So we have more money chasing the same number of goods. That is part of the reason why we've got inflation. Well, now we have real price inflation in commodities, and in particular, those that we depend upon for our energy, gas being the one that is especially featured at the moment. The price of most forms of gas are up so far this year about 250%. Why is that a problem? Well, I'll tell you why it's a problem. I mean, you know, have a look at that chart. You can see these are very, very big price rises indeed. Well, one of the problems that we've got is that this government has a price cap on gas prices. Now, this was something that Ed Miliband proposed back in the 2015 general election, and the Conservative Party response to it was that that would be communism. Yet, in government, that's exactly what the Conservatives have done. They've introduced a price cap, and guess what? The price of gas is now way through that cap. And so we now have half a dozen energy providers who if they're buying gas on the spot market now and selling it to you as a customer, are doing so at such a ruinous loss that they're on the verge of going out of business. And so this free market government will no doubt uh, put lots and lots of money into loans to bail out those companies. Believe you me, I have seen in my adult life, in commodities, which I worked in for 20 years, and in currencies, every single time government tries to set a floor of a price or a cap of a price every single time with 100% record of failure. It's breached and we have a crisis. This stuff doesn't actually work. Now, for over 20 years, I have been saying and I've been warning that the rush to wind energy, the belief that wind energy will solve all of our problems, I've said all the way through these 20 years that it's a very, very dangerous myth. And boy, have we invested in energy. We've invested initially in wind turbines on land uh, and in doing so we've despoiled many of the best upland areas in the United Kingdom. Since that time we've built many of these vast monstrosities out at sea. Now I wouldn't mind if they'd been built without massive taxpayer subsidy. 
and I perhaps wouldn't mind if they were a reliable source of energy. And you'll hear at times, you'll hear the chorus of delight. Yesterday, 27% of Britain's energy was provided by wind. Well, isn't that wonderful? But what you never hear from the wind lobby, what you never hear from our politicians, what is hardly ever debated in any form of mainstream media, is the fact that when the wind doesn't blow, they are completely and utterly useless. And for the last few days, we've had very little wind. So when in this country the wind isn't blowing, we then rely firstly on gas to back up that wind power, but secondly, we rely on importing electricity. So we import electricity directly. Uh, it comes to us from France, uh, predominantly. We import gas, of course. Some comes from Qatar. Some comes in from Norway, although the Russians who are in a very dominant position in this market, the Russians have not been selling that much gas to Europe over the course of this summer. They've been allowing Europe, Germany in particular, who've made themselves completely dependent on Russia, and they've been giving enough gas for them to survive hand-to-mouth. This isn't quite yet a 1973 OPEC oil crisis, where the price of oil went up three and a half times, uh, much to the delight of the Middle East, um, and, in the end, the financial ruin of much of the West with huge inflation. But we find ourselves in a very dependent position. There are other things in energy going on uh, that I find utterly bemusing, such as, in the name of going green, one of the country's biggest sources of energy, biggest producers, is the Drax plant in North Yorkshire. And guess what they burn to produce green energy? Trees. That's right. Vast numbers of trees that are cut down in North America, shipped across the Atlantic and burnt in North Yorkshire. So our thinking is all over the place. And when it comes to nuclear, the one form of energy that produces pretty much no carbon dioxide whatsoever. So you would have thought that the Green Lobby would embrace it. Well, when it comes to nuclear, we've got ourselves in a complete pickle because what little renewal there is within nuclear energy is now tied up with the Chinese government and there are now, unsurprisingly, security concerns. I think what this crisis shows us is whilst we can never fully protect ourselves against price swings and global events, we ought to aim to be energy independent. Donald Trump did it for the USA, and that, in many, many ways, took more power, potential power, away from Middle East countries, who often have standards we don't like, and Putin's Russia. We are nowhere near that. So what do we need to do? Well, a complete rethink of nuclear energy. We don't need to build the vast monstrosities of the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Rolls-Royce, for example, make very relatively small nuclear units that can produce a lot of reliable energy. Yes, I know we have to deal with nuclear waste. Yes, I know there are things like terrorist threats, but it's one of the things we could do. When it comes to gas, up in Cumbria, we have vast amounts of shale gas. There has been a very successful lobby to say, ah, oh, no, 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 we mustn't frack for gas. It'll cause earthquakes. It'll cause the water to go black. It'll be an environmental disaster. It's been a very successful green lobby against something that we absolutely need to do. And I will say this as well. We're still importing coal, 
particularly for use in the steel industry. Why import coal when that coal is here in our country? They're all positive, practical steps that I think we can take to make ourselves energy independent. And I really believe this now should become an aim of government. Please tell me what you think by commenting. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, joining me now to discuss this is gas consultant and former advisor to the government. And I'm really, really pleased, Clive Moffat, that you've come in to the studio. We're obviously at a post-pandemic age where we can actually see people. The price of gas has gone through the roof. How much of that is Putin withholding supply, in your opinion? Uh, I think Putin has taken advantage of a situation. I think um, the pipeline's already built, the Northern Pipeline, into Germany. It's a question of going operational. Yeah. I think he's keen to get that operational as soon as possible. So there's one pipeline there already, but it's the second one we're talking yeah. about. And it's, yeah, and, yeah. It's, and I think also they, the public statements are about Russia basically replenishing its own stocks of gas, yeah, um, before it actually begins full export into Western Europe. Um, you could say that's a public statement, but it's also, of course, a, a capitalisation on, on what's happening to the price. So, to some extent, you have Gazprom effectively, uh, if you like, not playing, yeah, doing what they normally would do as a major commodity supplier yeah. and enhancing their position. That's no surprise. Um, so, but I don't think we are at a Putin plot kind of uh, area of conspiracy and and James Bond. Um, so, no, well, I, mean, I, I did I did say it wasn't OPEC <laughs> 1973 just yet. Not quite. But we have become. I mean, Europe has become, yeah. as a geographical yeah. area, very dependent. I think, I think we have to look at it as a global issue because for several years now. Um, I was I set up and was chaired the UK Energy Security Group, which represented major industry users, uh, employees through the uh, unions, and also major infrastructure investors in the UK. And we were arguing with government even at the time of the coalition's uh, 2010, when they first launched electricity market reform and decarbonisation was firmly put on the agenda. We said we were up arguing then that natural gas had a critical role to play and will continue to have a critical role to play, both of heating and power generation. And that still stands. Mm. Even two years ago, the grid was endorsing that particular mantra and saying, yes, it will be a major source of flexible supply. What's happened since then is that, as you've just point, been pointing out, is that we have had, we've become more vulnerable than we were two years ago when we were arguing with Bayes and with ministers that the need to actually think about not just carbon reduction, but to actually bring into the equation issues of affordability and security. So are they just obsessed with decarbonisation to the yeah. exclusion of everything else? I think the, we were getting messages very clearly from officials that they did not want or were re very reluctant to endorse any policy which implied that they were giving a long-term future or even a medium-term future yeah. to natural gas. Because our arguments and industry's arguments were the transition to net zero could take a, quite a long time. And in the meantime, we are, what, 70% dependent on domestic heat and 40% on power generation on natural gas. This isn't going to go away. No. So what we should do, if we are becoming at the same time 
continental shelf production is going down, import dependency is rising, as you pointed out, mm. we become extremely vulnerable. We have pipelines from Norway, you're correct, and we have one from Europe. But both of those are subject, can be subject to technical hitches and also production both in the Netherlands and in Norway has been declining. So, and Gazprom is increasingly putting its uh, supplies through both in LNG form and through pipelines yeah. into Western Europe. So we are becoming increasingly dependent on imports, particularly short-term LNG shipments. And as a commodity broker trader, you understand that the ship, if the price is higher in Japan, than it is here. Mm. It will go to Japan. Mm. Uh, our argument was that, yes, there is plenty of gas in the world. This is our argument to Bayes. And if you look at it, there is a diversity ranging from continental shelf to interconnectors to LNG. But will the gas be there at the right time when we need it at the right price? And we spent ages trying to persuade uh, uh, government that price security and I don't mean capping here, no, I mean work. security in terms of mitigating volatility, which we're experiencing at the moment, is just as important as supply. When we had the beast from the east, we were seriously within 24 hours of industry being forcibly shut down because there was no gas in the system. So we've got industries closing now because of the price, those big fertiliser plants, etc. And they will always be the first target. Domestic consumers will be protected as much as yes, they can be. Yes, but industry matters, and of course the levelling up agenda, <laughs> it matters for the North, particularly with these factories. Yeah. Are we in danger, price points aside, are we in danger of running out of energy? Let's just suppose that a great big anticyclone sits yeah. over us in February, which could happen. Yeah. A week or two weeks of fog, yeah. frost and no wind. We could be in trouble. Yeah. Grid have always said the major measure of security of gas is N minus one. So a normality minus one factor. Uh, if we can survive that, we're OK. And we said, yeah, but we've had situations where it's N minus three. Yeah. So you've had a technical hitch on a pipeline, you've had a seasonal demand fluctuation in Europe, and you've had sudden increase in LNG demand in Asia. The mm. combination of that can easily result in a, a shortage of supply. Mm. Um, and the fundamental underlier of that is we have no, short, we have no storage. Uh, Europe, I, I've on average, that, uh, has 25% of aggregate demand in store. Yeah, we've got, like, 2% or something. We're, we're down to 1.7. Right. We, ever since the closure of Centrica's rough facility, Centrica put a, a business plan Who? together for government and they turned it down. It would have cost a few You've million advised pounds. government, you've advised ministers on this stuff. They've clearly not been listening. They've been obsessed with this rush for, we're all going green, and quite why they're burning trees in North Yorkshire, but maybe another day we'll talk about that. Um, um, they've not been listening. I'm trying to put forward this argument that we should be energy independent. Yeah. I'm afraid, yeah, Nigel, in, in some ways, I'm afraid we're too late for that. Um, as somebody senior in Mobile once said to me back in 2010, you're at the end of the pipeline. I worked for RWE for years in Essen, and they used to declare that UK was the island. Mm. You know, it's a sort of like a, sort of we're at the end of the pipe. We're, to, we're import dependent. We have no real storage. Well, we can turn this around, can't we? We can, but it takes time. You yes. can't suddenly flick your fingers. No. And, and it takes, for example, three, five years to build a storage facility. But if a government... If a government, if Boris Johnson looked at this mess, and who knows how bad it might get, if Boris Johnson looked at this mess and said, right, we are now going to take a strategic decision. 
whilst we want to do everything we can for the environment, we're going to make sure the United Kingdom yes. can't be held hostage by anybody in the by, by world markets or any administration. If that big strategic decision was taken, absolutely with... agree with you full, fully. I mean, the, we were effectively asking them, and they said, "You're asking us." in your policy recommendations, this was back in um, when we were discussing this issue, um, that you needed to sort of look at it in terms of carbon reduction, affordability and yeah, security. Yeah. You can't simply just dump two and just focus on one. And if you do that, then what's going to happen is that the least well-off in this society are going to suffer most because they're the ones who bear the brunt of energy price increase. And they are. And already. they're going to do. Yeah. No use the minister today yeah. announcing that there's going to be a maintenance of caps. When the energy supply companies won't sustain a cap. If the wholesale price is doing that, yeah. you're losing money yeah. and you're going to go out of business. Yeah. So we have 70 of those companies. Yeah. And let alone the green subsidy they're paying already yeah. on their electricity bills. This is, and this cost to, to the consumer and to industry mm. is something that the government haven't factored in to the overall costs of the net zero programme. <laughs> Clive Moffat, thank you. Fascinating. You've spent your life in this. You know your onions. Please come back to us, because I have a feeling this crisis isn't going to go away now. No, I agree with you. I think um, let's hope it doesn't... Let's hope the lights don't go out in the meantime. Well, let's hope so. Well, on that really optimistic note. In a minute, we will cross to New York, where Darren McCaffrey has managed, despite not having a visa, but by getting on the Prime Minister's plane to be there. And it looks like Boris may have had a bit of a win on his first day back in his birth city of New York. Did you know that? And we'll also talk about the National Health Service reportedly beginning voluntary Black Lives Matter training for their staff. No, really. It's all going to come up in a minute. Well, I'm making the case tonight we need to become energy independent. It's going to need a change of government strategy, a bit less of an obsession with wind, which, when it doesn't blow, means we have a real problem. And, boy, at the moment, we have got a real problem. So I asked you what you thought. Steve on Twitter says, the world and our future grandchildren are very reliant on renewable energy. Well, yeah, that's fine, but what happens if this winter we run out of energy? And I'd put this to you. It isn't just for manufacturing. It isn't just for industry, but given our computerised, digitalised world, we actually rely on electricity today more than we ever have done. Mike on Twitter says, I wonder if the only solution is nuclear power. Well, I don't think, Mike, it's the only solution, but I do think we need to have a proper examination of modern nuclear reactors, because they are a fraction of the size of the old 50s and 60s monstrosities. Uh, they produce tiny amounts of waste, and yes, I know we have to deal with it, but I do think we need to look at it. But surely, if we're going to do that, we don't want Chinese Communist Party investment. Rob on email says, the solution, question mark, hydropower. The UK has the third highest tide in the world and a number of projects that could solve our energy. Well, look, you know, the one thing about reliable power, unlike wind, is we can predict the high tide times of Dover 100 years to this day, and the size and strength of that tide. I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable about engineering uh, to say to you why we've not yet found the answer to that. 
Peter on email says, as Mrs Thatcher has always said, do not pass energy to foreign countries, keep it in the UK. And Steve on email says, we have the solution for the energy crisis outside our windows. Sun, wind and water. Yeah, but it all sounds terrific, but... Uh, the point about it is that wind, that's where the investment's gone. When I say the investment, your investment, that's where your taxpayers' money has gone. And it isn't reliable. And if we do get this big winter anti-cyclone in February, we're going to be in trouble. Trevor on email says, why isn't the government investing more in our hydrogen economy uh, for producing more renewable energy? Look, I am certain one of the reasons I said nuclear's not the sole answer... I'm certain that hydrogen has got a big part to play in this. Now, Darren McCaffrey has managed to get into the US. I've been trying for months but haven't succeeded at all. But Darren's got there. As GB News' political editor, he's there with Boris Johnson. Darren, you're in New York somewhere, I think. Yeah, I'm in Times Square, Nigel, the crossroads of the world. I thought, given the fact that there's been this big announcement today on travel, where else to go to than the wonders, it must be said, of uh, Times Square? Though it's not quite as busy as it normally would be, because, frankly, there's not that many international uh, tourists here, because <coughs> the start of 2020, uh, they have been uh, largely not been allowed to get into the United States, but that is going to change, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Darren, you know, for business travellers, uh, you know, and, and for those that want to go to Disneyland or whatever it is, it's been very, very frustrating. So the Biden administration, it, it'll be us and the EU, will it, that will be able to travel from some point in November if we're double-jabbed. Yeah, precisely. So President Biden making this announcement that, you're right, if you're double-jabbed, British, European, there's some other countries on that as well. And the United States will reopen to you again. It's been quite a long time, hasn't it? Uh, in many regards, this announcement has really caught people on the hop to a large degree, not least of all Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, who, frankly, is trying to claim this as a victory for himself. Though yesterday, when we were travelling with him on the plane on the way here, he ex said not to expect a breakthrough on this issue, that we shouldn't hold our breath. But I think, to be fair, it's pressure from London, Brussels and elsewhere uh, that has actually convinced the Biden administration that they don't want to face this barrage of question of when international visitors can return. Yeah. And given uh, that there's been this reciprocal agreement, or that hasn't been, sorry, but that US visitors have been allowed into Britain and Europe over the summer, but it's not been reciprocated, that's played a part, as is the science behind if you're fully vaccinated, you're pretty safe. And this place and others want to reopen up again. Yeah, now, Boris today has been at the United Nations and tomorrow is going to be the Oval Office meeting, isn't it? Yeah, so a big day today in many regards because... And I say that because he's been meeting, like, Bolsonaro of Brazil and Erdogan of Turkey, uh, President Moon of South Korea. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because, ultimately, the UK is chairing this COP summit, aren't they, in Glasgow yeah. in November. And that's a pretty big deal because... it's the biggest cop, really, that we've seen since Paris. There's an awful lot of political pressure on Boris Johnson and, indeed, in the UK to be mean to make that a success, to get countries to pledge more money, to make more commitments when it comes to lowering uh, emissions. And Boris Johnson today has been trying to cajole, twist arms, convince these leaders they need uh, to do more. Now, you're right, he's going to travel to Washington tomorrow for his first meeting as Prime Minister in the White House with yeah. 
President Joe Biden. Now, Joe Biden largely is on the same page. I think a win for Boris Johnson would be trying to convince him to stomp up even more money at that meeting tomorrow ahead of COP26 in November. Yeah, and even if he does, I mean, what success is Johnson going to have with China and with Russia on carbon uh, emissions? I mean, that's his... I mean, even he himself today didn't put his chances of success at higher than 6 out of 10, did he? Yeah, indeed, and that's just to get $100 billion, which is a lot of money, but essentially it's a big target that he set himself. Uh, the wealthy countries will contribute transfers of money, essentially, up to $100 billion worth to poorer countries so that they can help fight climate change. Boris Johnson's argument on that is essentially it is us wealthy countries who admit more carbon dioxide, but yet it is poorer countries who normally face some of the more severe disadvantages and pressures from uh, climate yeah. change. But on the plane yesterday, he was giving himself a 6 out of 10 chance that he'll even reach that target uh, by uh, November. And I think in the end, uh, that's why it's all really political tricky for Boris Johnson. What is success at that COP summit? And there are reports that Xi Jinping, the Chinese Premier, potentially might not attend. And without China, the largest global emitter of carbon in the world, frankly, is a deal worth anything? And yeah. that's why Boris Johnson, I think, is really feeling the pressure on this in the weeks to come and why days yeah. like today are actually quite important. Yeah, no, I get that. But tomorrow, Darren, he faces other problems. Um, you know, not just the manner of the withdrawal from Afghanistan by the Americans and the fact that the phone call from the Prime Minister wasn't returned, but we also have Biden and Nancy Pelosi uh, speaking up strongly in favour of the Brussels and Dublin position on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And from what I can see, unless a rabbit is going to be pulled out of a hat like the AUKUS deal, uh, not much prospect of a trade deal at this moment with the USA under Joe Biden. No, I think that's entirely right. Very, very much on the back foot. I mean, we again brought that up with the Prime Minister yesterday. There's no sense that we're anywhere close. Now, Boris Johnson's argument is that they are making progress on things like lowering tariffs on whiskey, yeah. getting British beef back sold in the United States again. But fundamentally, this idea of a proper free trade agreement is a long way down the track. It is not a priority for the Biden administration. I don't think we're anything close to that. And you're right, time and time again, they come back, of course, to Northern Ireland and the yeah. peace process. We heard that from Nancy Pelosi last week in the UK. I'm sure we will hear it from Biden yesterday. And even suggestions the Prime Minister wouldn't rule this out, of course, that he may well still have to trigger Article 16, which, again, would not be favourable with, it must be said, the democratic opinion here in the United States. So I think the prospects of a UK-US trade deal are a very, very long way down the track. In fact, I would say not going to happen with this administration, frankly, Nigel. No, I agree. Well, Darren, we'll catch up with you tomorrow in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, enjoy Times Square. Thank you. So, something of a victory for Boris Johnson on the first day. Whether it really has much to do with him isn't the point. But the fact we can, if we're double-jabbed, start going back to America from mid-November is, I think, very good news. Now, my What the Farage moment. Black Lives Matter training. Well, it's being reported... Uh, in the Daily Telegraph, uh, that BLM training is being offered to NHS England staff as part of a series of new diversity courses, and it sparked fury from government insiders and taxpayers' groups. Training will cover white privilege, 
unconscious bias and authentic allyship. And reportedly, it's going to be put up on the NHS People website, an online learning por portal for the health services staff. Well, this is what The Telegraph are reporting, and uh, I have to say, uh, one of the courses is history uh, to the guiding principles and messages of Black Lives Matter. Now, the training is primarily about the wider BLM movement, uh, but I have to say, you know, links to an interview with one of the founders of the BLM group, uh, and, and, and frankly, uh, you know, Patrice Cullors, uh, and she's now quit, but previously she described herself and the co-founder, Alicia Garza, they described themselves as trained Marxists. One of the key objectives on their website is to defund the police. And Black Lives Matter isn't about bringing equality. Black Lives Matter isn't about bringing racial justice. Black Lives Matter is about division. Because that's what Marxism is all about. To make us hate the country we live in, loathe our own society, bring it all down with revolution, and then we'll get some wonderful new Marxist communist order. Uh, and I would have thought that for the National Health Service, who've got enough problems, they face a crisis of their own, to be wasting vast amounts of money on diversity officers and to be offering courses on an organisation that stands against pretty much everything this country has ever stood for is a huge mistake. Now, the other What the Farage moment is since last Thursday, we, of course, had the AUKUS deal. I couldn't believe it. It came completely out of left field. Nobody expected it, but there it was. The US, the UK and Australia doing a deal to help Australia get themselves into the 21st century with nuclear submarines. Why is that being done? Well, because of the increased militarism of China. They are building, rapidly building up their Royal Navy uh, to an extent that, frankly, beggars belief. They're building almost the equivalent of the Royal Navy every single year. They're building airstrips, landing strips on contested islands, and Australia feels very much in the firing line, although less so, perhaps, than Taiwan does, or even, to some extent, Japan. The French have gone potty, despite the fact we've offered a 21st century solution and theirs was a 20th century solution. The French have thrown their toys out of the pram. I could scarcely believe that they withdrew their ambassador over the weekend from Washington. They've done the same from Canberra in Australia. And Macron is making loud and petulant noises. Frankly, he looks ridiculous. And there was going to be a defence summit this week between France and the United Kingdom, and it was a course that Blair set us on for us to be much closer to France in military terms. And guess what? They've cancelled the summit and they're rubbishing the UK, saying that we're very much a junior partner. Now, what has really happened here is the globalist nightmare. It's a nightmare for France, it's a nightmare for Brussels and the European Union, because what we're doing is we're actually showing ourselves to be realigning with the Anglosphere and looking at the world in a different way. NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, but actually now it's the Pacific and, and the Far East where we now need to be genuinely concerned in security terms about the future. And I think with this move, we're showing ourselves and the world 
that in foreign policy terms, Brexit was the right thing to do. I genuinely and passionately believe that. Now, in a moment, joining me on Talking Pints is Alex Proud. He owns nightclubs and cabarets. I wouldn't think lockdown has been too good for him. Well, joining me today on Talking Pints is Alex Proud, and he's a restaurateur. He owns galleries, nightclubs, cabaret, and he's pretty outspoken. Alex, welcome to Talking Pints. <laughs> Cheers, good evening. It's very good to see you. Now, you have the most conventional of backgrounds, don't you? The sort of very conventional middle-class background, privately educated, off to university. But I wouldn't exactly say your career had been, you know, wearing a pinstripe suit and commuting into London, has it? You've, you've, you've kind of... You're an entrepreneur. You've, you've struck your own course. And I've no doubt, you know, we read about your successes. I'm sure there have been a few failures. Oh, there's been more than a few failures. I mean, uh, I think I was privatised man of the uh, week a few months ago, strangely, just before uh, the tax man knocked to my door. Um, I think it's, it's strange, actually. When, when, when I... Um, I used to do more talks at schools and things. I think now, when you get a bit too controversial, they don't, they don't like to invite you in. But I used to really like talking to kids about entrepreneurship because one of the things that always upsets in this country is... Um, you know, there was this big article, I'd lost uh, several million pounds of taxpayers' money, as in, you know, lost money to the VAT. And it was only when I pointed out that actually I'd, I'd put £40 million in on the plus side. And, and when you look at life and go, if someone's going to put £40 million in the, the net contribution side and somewhere the line lose £2 million, then that's still £38 million more than if I hadn't bothered doing what I'd done. And, and in America, they see that. And I think it's very frustrating yeah. in this country. We tend to immediately look at that and go, that's a failure. And, and, and to succeed, you will learn more from failing every time of the week. I think people don't realise when, when, when you talk to people like Brant's whenever and it's, wow, what is your genius? People don't realise a lot of the genius is being in the right place at the right time and taking advantage of it. You know, think about how many Brant's and firms failed down the years, Virgin Weddings. So how do you start? How do you start as an entrepreneur? Do you, do you wake up one morning and say, I've got to be an entrepreneur? Or, or do you just sort of have, a, have a few hot ideas that you want to follow? No, I, I don't know. I think with me, it was probably just the rebellion. Um, I, I, was, I was lucky. I was brought up... My dad was a stamp dealer. He kind of left school at 14. He was a classic man made good. And um, he brought me up firmly with that sense of individualism, of being able to decide his own fate to some extent. I, I really enjoyed that. And then <laughs> that, plus I left university in 91, when there was that massive recession, you know, we mm. dropped out of the... Uh, ERM. Uh, yeah, the that, ERM. Thank goodness, I'll drink to that. Yeah, well, no, actually, I hate to say it, even as a Liberal, you know, you weren't wrong on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, OK, that's, that's one. <laughs> but so, um, and there wasn't actually many jobs you'd get, so I ended up being an art dealer. I wasn't very good at that. And, and then I very coincidentally, um, I, in fact, I employed... A PA, and she said her husband was a famous photographer and he photographed uh, Dennis Morris' Sex Pistols. And I, I had an art gallery, it wasn't doing Terry totally One. Well, I did this photographic exhibition, and suddenly we were on the front cover of, of G2 and everything else. And, and I realised rock and roll photography, there's a generation who'd grown up yeah. at my age who perhaps were interested in things that were more relevant to them. And rock and roll photography was in a huge sort of area, and no one had really done it. And there were all these wonderful old people, Mick Rock, and all these people who'd photographed all these great stuff. But unlike everything now, back then they weren't tied down by agents. They owned their own copyright, they owned their own photographs. And we did all these fabulous shows. And, and 
It, did, it, you, did, you, did you have to have money to start doing that? No, not much, actually. I, I mean, I picked up a, a, a net, well, rail trap, but then property that was empty and rent-free for three years. And, you know, I think young people, again, need to realise that you, you always need to... You know, now is a fabulous time, if you're young, to go out and do business because the world is your, your oyster in terms of there is loads of property that, 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 people, that is empty and you can go and make deals and you can start something for a lot less than you normally can. And there's a lot of government money out there trying to help new businesses and it's it's a really good time when when the chips are down like they currently yeah. are this is a fabulous time to go out and, and make money and, and and get started it's when everything's successful and yeah. property prices are it's high that, it's that wonderful warren buffett comment isn't it who says buffett says when people get greedy i get nervous when people get nervous, I get greedy. Entirely true. It's really true. And I think, you know, this is a, a one... What, what I think is frustrating right now is we've got one of these rare opportunities where the centre of London is relatively inexpensive again and full of opportunity. And I, I think with a little bit of government direction, with a little bit of intellectual uh, ability here, we can really reseed central London because it was getting a little boring and it was becoming so expensive and so full of hedge fund people who suddenly left the city where they should be firmly kept away and suddenly came into central London and they pushed prices up enormously. And I think the problem you saw was where when I started out, my first bar was in Camden and, you know, you could start out bars for... I mean, I started out with a loan of £60,000, a lot of money but achievable. Uh, and, and, and that's how I started out. But, you know, it got to a stage a few years ago where you needed millions to start in the West End, and then that kills our creativity. Yeah. And then we end up becoming like Paris, and the reason Paris was boring is because it doesn't have a lot going on. And I think London has to be so careful not to lose that vibrancy. And it, and it makes me really nervous seeing so many pubs and so many restaurants going out of business, and wow. the chains are going round sucking up cheap, cheap, cheap sites, and, 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 it, and it worries me that we're going to become yeah. boring. And, you know, some of the Trains are very good, but a lot of them crush individuality. Uh, the product becomes standard, bog standard, yeah. bit stale, not very interesting. Um, I went to a pub in West Sussex at the weekend. It looked like a lovely country pub, but actually, do you know what? It was part of one of the big chains. The food was boring. There was no individuality to it. But you've built up your own nightclubs, cabaret, all the rest of it, which are very high overhead. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, can be, it can be a bit frightening. I mean, you know, let's, the, the, uh, the, the lockdown wasn't for the faint-hearted. I mean, you know, it's the, the government kind of forgot the us. The government so. did help a bit, didn't it? Not much, no. I mean, if you, the, the, the problem was, I mean, if you look at someone like Paris, the government was giving restaurants something like 60 70% of their turnover. We were getting a grant. Now, the problem with the government is they did it in that very, like, a lot of lockdown. They did this very sort of socialist thing of just giving exact lump sums. They weren't percentages. Mm. So it doesn't matter if I, I've got a giant place or I'm a tiny sandwich shop, we all got two grand a month. Two grand a month doesn't cover our IT bill let alone my insurance, which actually somehow went up even though the insurance companies didn't pay out. Let's not talk about that scandal. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, there's still no payouts to, to our sector. And, you know, furlough, the government said furlough, but furlough was a way of making us do the government's work. We were playing unemployment benefit out to people. It wasn't, didn't help my business. I'm very glad for my staff that was there. No, our sector was pretty left alone. And nightclubs, which weren't able to open at all. I run a restaurant come nightclub, so I was able to open for bits and bobs of the lockdowns. Yeah. And that made all the difference. But a lot of nightclubs were shut for the whole period, nearly two years 
years, and they didn't get a penny. I mean, they got... They some, have a lot gone bust. Yeah, loads have gone bust. Loads yeah. have taken a huge... I mean, I've taken a couple of million in debt, and, and it's scary. I mean, I, I'm, I'm lucky. I tend to go to bed and sleep. That's why I do my job. I kind of... I do stress, and that's... that's I'm good Was at Was government overcautious? I think overcautious, definitely. I think what it was was... But lives, lives were at stake. No, but there was a lot of virtue signal going on. Because when you actually dug into the statistics, I, I, I run or I, I set up the Nighttime Industry Association, I'm very involved with it, and we actually spent quite a lot of money on the science and statistics. For example, even when we were allowed to reopen, we were responsible, I think it was 1.8%, this is government statistics, yeah. of infections. Where you were getting ill was in hospital, at work, and on your train to work. That's, uh, that's where everyone got ill, and, and possibly at schools. Restaurants and nightclubs are actually incredibly well ventilated. We have to be. We have health and safety all over us. There's an enormous amount of people yeah. who are employed to make our jobs very difficult. And does London now boom again? Yeah, I think bits of London are booming. I think if you're... If, I tried to move a little bit up market during lockdown. I, I invested some of the money that I borrowed from the government, um, and, and that loan system was a good system, and, and I, I think the government did well. I mean, albeit it is a loan, I've got to pay it back. I think... Um, if you're right in the middle of town, so when you, the, the problem in London at the moment is it's not very deep. So if you go to Soho, Covent Garden, I think a lot of cities like this, if you're right in the middle, it feels good. Mm. But the moment you come out a little bit and it drops off a cliff, and London's losing its depth, I think it's a great time to be in the region. So the, the old market towns, places like Tunbridge Wells, Seven Oaks, all these places, York, they're, they're going to boom because people are, are becoming more local and they're, yeah. they're worried about the commute. And I think we'll have yeah. this this winter again. And, and also, I think, actually, we've kind of fallen in love with the country again. Uh, we, you know, we, we've not been to Spain or America or all the things that we normally do, and people have been out and they've seen market towns and our seaside, and they really rather like it. And well, see, it is rather nice. And, well, a lot of it's pretty good. Yeah, no. Now, what fascinates me, Alex, is for an entrepreneur and a risk-taker and a ducker and a diver, you studied politics at university and you're a Liberal Democrat. Now, now and that's not to say that classical liberal philosophy actually works quite well with entrepreneurship, but modern-day lib, lib Dem ideology... Isn't exactly pro-business, is it? No, I mean, but I, you know, I would, I would say I've always been to the right of the party. I mean, let, let's be really blunt about politics. If the Liberal Democrats have been in the right sector of liberalism and the, the right end free trade, and you know, which are, the bit that I quite like. Well, it's the bit I quite like, and that's perhaps why I'm not quite so involved in the party. <laughs> um, but I think because they, they want to ban everything. Well, I think the, the, the problem with British politics is it, it, it lacks a middle. It lacks a lot of common sense in the middle right now. I, and I'm I'm all for. I, I can't bear the sense that we shouldn't have people who are pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit or pro-free trade. We should all debate these things vigorously. What I find distressing in British politics, especially say we take the lockdown, was that, weirdly, the, the Tories and Boris went so socialist that Labour didn't have to oppose anymore. Let's just give everyone know, bucket loads of money. I know. And what worries me is it's not ending. Well, the government has still kept all their powers, they're still telling us exactly what to do, when we need to do it, and I, I, I'm really worried. The, the, the great problem with all authority, whether it's the police, councils, government, central government, if you give it power, it very rarely gives it back. And it really alarms no, I me get that. that the British public uh, and British politicians seem to have laid back and taken it, you know, and, and, and I don't understand the Labour Party and the Liberal Party not much more aggressive no, I mean, I mean, to this. Look, you know, a real Liberal Party would have made a lot of noise yes. over the course of lockdown and, and, and I think found quite an audience. Where were you on Brexit? Because the Lib Dems are fanatically pro-EU. I mean, I, I, was, I, I believed 
in Europe, I believe the, the problem was it's better to be inside the tent <clears throat> than outside the yeah, tent. I get it. I, but I do. I, I was a great uh, supporter of reform in the EU, and I felt that, that, that trying to reform, you know, the fact that the budget hadn't been signed off, what is it, in 10 years, an accountancy firm won't sign was, off. I mean, was, you know, and I think we would be much better to try to, to change it. But you could argue we've been trying to change it for, for nearly 50 years. Uh, you could, but then again, did we try very hard to create a North European bloc? Did we try to convert the Germans? I never quite understood why we couldn't have... The Germans hate corruption. They're, they're actually, you know, they, they're natural allies, much more uh, than France are close David to David Cameron, David Cameron, you know, at the point of an electoral gun... Yes, he, had, of, of his own making... Uh, well, he was forced into it. Mm. He was forced into it. They were losing support to UKIP on a level that was just unsustainable. He had to do something. And I think the truth is the Tory grassroots were where UKIP was as opposed to where he was. So he had to do something. Well, it's the old but, saying, was it 200,000 people in the Tory party who vote? Yeah. Made the policy for... for well, for I, think when the I think when the country came to have it say... We well, that's true, that's true. And also, I think to make it clear here, I'm, I'm, I, I, I believe in post-Brexit politics. We've done it. Yeah, good. So what I'm annoyed by now, that I, I find frustrating, is I feel that now we're, we're literally wasting this opportunity. And I'm very frustrated because I think, like a lot of sensible businessmen who sit in the centre of politics, who are sad to leave Europe, but, but I, I believe that the British public spoke, and I'm not going to get into that, but I think what annoys me now is now, then let's go and take advantage. So why haven't we simplified the tax system? Why have we just sat there? All these things that you know, happen. Do you know, the real frustration, you know, as somebody that's believed in Brexit, well, ever since ERM, it was ERM that you yeah. mentioned earlier that got me into it. My real frustration is we're not taking advantage of the potential opportunities that Brexit can give us. Now, the counter-argument to that is that government's too busy with COVID. But when you look at the size of government and the number of people in government, uh, I think there's a lot of things we could be doing on, you know, supply-side reform, helping small entrepreneurs, recognising that small business wasn't doing great under European rules. And, we, and we're not doing any of it. So I'm, I'm disappointed by that. Well, and, and also, we seem to be walking into a lot of the mistakes that Blair made. We're going to go and, I think, pump in 2012 or 14 or however many billion pounds into the NHS before we reform it. And Blair did that. And guess what? It, it evaporated. Can anyone actually tell you where, what was it, 40 or 50 billion he gave? And, and it, it disappeared. And that, that's, don't get me wrong, the NHS is brilliant. It's Britain at its best. But it needs reform. And if you just hand that money over, yeah. what, two things. One, it will disappear and it will disappear in productivity, which won't occur and will drop like it did. And two, we won't see any money going into social care, which desperately needs it. The way we treat the elderly, the way we treat people with learning difficulties and physical difficulties in this country is, is, is shameful. During the lockdown, there were young 14, 12-year-old kids who didn't see anyone for 12 months, and, 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 and that's where money and reform needs to go. And I think, you know, you always need to look at a country and how it treats its least, or the, the least advantaged people. And, and I, at the moment, I think Britain fails there, and I think there's so much reform. A radical, reforming yes. Liberal Party. Is yes, it, it, literally, that, that is what I believed in and what I still passionately believe in, and yeah. I'm so let down by politics that we seem to be lacking real radical thinking when we need it. And Boris annoyed me because he flirts with the idea and then never has... He never goes intellectually through. There's no depth. Isn't he telling the public what he thinks they want to hear? Well, he's telling them what the last person he saw told him, it seems, a lot of the time. Certainly under <laughs> COVID, that seems to be what happened. But anyway. Alex, finally, 
a message for young people watching who are thinking about getting out there on their own and doing their own thing? I, I think, I think it, you literally couldn't be at a better time um, to be doing it. You know, th this is a time of opportunity. There are city centres all over this country now with empty shops, Come up with your idea, be bold, speak to the landlord, say, I can't pay any rent for a year, but will you let me have a go? They, you'll be amazed what you can go out and do for very little money. And there are so many people that want to help. There's so much government money available right now. This is a brilliant time to go out and, and reinvent Britain. And, you know, we did this in the, in the 80s after Thatcher when, when the city centres, students went in, art went in, bars went in, the crazy new romantics, everything else. And we reinvented this brilliant Britain. And it was exists. positive, wasn't it? It was brilliant. And we we can do that again now and we need to go and do it now because if young people don't come and do it right now, I think the uh, elderly politicians are letting this country down. I like that. Well, it's a really good positive message there from Alex Pratt. If you're young, there's never been a better time to get out there and go for it. Well, we've got a couple of minutes left on the programme and it's time for the usual slot of Barrage the Farage where you send your questions in and where, of course, I do not get a chance to see them before. So here goes. Ricky on email asks, You're so full of energy. How do you keep so bright-eyed despite a 5am alarm every morning? Yes, I was up at 5 this morning. Didn't need the alarm. How do I keep going? Do you know, I'll tell you the answer to that. I could flippantly say gin and cigarettes, but that wouldn't be true. Um, optimism. Optimism. My energy comes from optimism. I like doing what I do. and I've, I've enjoyed all the things I've done in my life, whether it was trading commodities, leading political parties, being here on GB News. Um, I've enjoyed all of them. And the reason I've enjoyed all of them is I've felt that I could always make a difference with what I do. Uh, and I believe there's been a huge gap in the television market in this country. Uh, so much of what was sp is spoken about on other news channels comes from absolutely within the M25, as if the rest of the country doesn't even exist. They all come at almost everything from a woke perspective. They're terrified of free open debate. And I'm not. Goodness me, I've just had a liberal on with me. You know, I've had Ken Livingston on with me. I want to do these things in a civilised way, but I... So it's optimism. Optimism gives me energy. Dan on email asks, do you think that Russia and China are punishing the West without going to war. Gas crisis, COVID, and acquiring minerals in Afghanistan. No, Joe Biden gave the minerals in Afghanistan to China. I mean, it really was strategically the most ridiculous thing to do, given there's $3.5 trillion worth of load there of lithium, copper, and other uh, materials. So that was completely mad. Um, the rest of it, uh, China, look, I think the virus came from a lab leak, but I don't think it was deliberate, all right? Barbara asks me on email, if you could choose a member of the royal family to have a pint with, who would it be? Well, it wouldn't be Prince Charles, because he and I have fallen out a bit in the past. We had quite a public row a long, long time ago, although I think he's a nice and genuine man. The answer is, I would like to have gone for a pint with Prince Harry before he met Meghan, because I think he might have been quite fun. Finally, Steve on email asks, the impossible choice, Nigel, Brexit or cricket? Oh, gosh, that's difficult. But I have to say, on balance, Brexit has to win. There's no question about that. Much as I love cricket, and I was very, very disappointed that last Test match did not go ahead, 
We've got the Ryder Cup to look forward to this week. Let's hope that EU flag doesn't appear. I'm back with you all tomorrow. Uh, I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs>